Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where I interview a new guest who's lost a family member, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic grief representation. This episode is sponsored by Magic Mind. So this is one of three upcoming episodes that I recorded uh, over a year ago. I am a monster, but thank you for your continued patience and letting me take my time to tell these stories. I am aiming to release the other two before the end of the year, but also please don't hold me to it because I am fragile. This episode, I interviewed the wonderfully sweet Regan McAtee. Regan is a fellow Midwest-raised lesbian and is currently a remote verification specialist. Regan comes from a huge family of 12 kids, 10 of whom were adopted, including Regan. And tragically, when Regan was nine years old, her baby brother, Matthew, drowned. So my dad comes from a family of just four kids, him included, my mom is just one of two. And so when they met, like, basically it was one of those, someone wanted them to get together. My mom was like, eh, I don't really want to. My dad was like, hey, I'm going to pursue this. And then five months later, they're engaged. Like, that's literally how it happened. My dad sold his car to get the ring. My mom had always said that she wanted to have kids and wanted to adopt because she just has, like, such a heart for it. Um, My parents both very religious, very, like, came from that upbringing. My mom kind of was like, you know... I'm going to do whatever I need to just to serve the higher power kind of a thing. And so she was very set on it. My dad was also, but they didn't know how many kids they were going to actually get. When they first had my two older brothers who they had like within four years after marriage, the second one, Tim, my mom almost passed away. Like they both almost passed away in childbirth. Um, They had complications. She had to go for emergency C-section, all of that stuff. Very quickly, the reality came, like, if you want to have more kids, adoption's the way to go. And they started with my older sister, who, um, she's from Peru, and they just, like, they found an agency, they went, that was it. And then 10 years later was me, so I was born in 96, um, and my parents were like, let's just figure out where we want to go. And my mom's best friend had a dream and was like, there's a place in Nepal, you should go there. And then my mom literally like jumped on a plane the next week. She was going on vacation, but she didn't tell my dad she wasn't coming back after that, that she was just going to fly from Fiji to Nepal, get me and come back. (laughs) Like my mom was a very adventurous person. That's just how she is. And then after me, it became all around Chicagoland. Like you'd get, my mom would get a call and I would know. I'd just hear in her voice, be like, okay, so we're getting another kid. What time do I need to be, like, what time do we all have to be ready? Like, where are we going? We're going to Peoria. We're going to South Side of Chicago before. Like it was everywhere. And that was just my childhood. I was second adopted, fourth oldest. And then it went all the way up until 2005 that we adopted, like the last kid was adopted in 2005. And like my parents just, they didn't stop. If someone called them with a foster or adoption, they said yes. And it was just, that's where their hearts were. I was adopted at seven months. So what's actually funny is we don't know my real birthday. My mom showed up in Nepal, found the house of the orphanage. Basically the lady who owned the orphanage lined all of us kids up 
and I was laying in a pile of rags and my mom said, I want that one. And she's like, you don't want that one. She's, she's dying. And I was like, no, that's the one I want. And basically from then we were there for a month. It took her a month to get out of the country with me just because of paperwork and everything. And the embassy didn't want to sign papers and you know, that kind of thing. So by the time when I was there, I was five pounds, seven ounces. By the time she got me out of the country, I was like going on 16 pounds. Like she got me healthy and basically saved my life. Well, I remember being like four and looking, cause my parents are white. And I remember looking at my skin and looking at my mom's skin and being like, how does that work? And <laughs> my sister who was 14 was like, you're adopted. And that was how, that's literally how I found out. I was just told and I'm like, okay going to church I grew up in a very like prominently white church and like you know you didn't really see a lot of biracial families and then here comes our family with like 12 kids yeah. <laughs> you know so as fun as it does sound there were like the downsides to it especially like 2000s like there's a lot of just in like racism and that kind of stuff you know um there were times that our garage door got pegged with with things like go back to India because of me, um, or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, there was definitely times DCFS got called if it was even as simple as like my mom took us to the grocery store and she was in the middle of doing the kid's hair, you know, like something like that. Someone's like, Oh, that person's malnourishing their kids. No, we're just going to get groceries because we need lunch. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, simple things like that happen. And it was definitely hard for me to see because I growing up, I believed in all the good in the world. You know, I believed every, I believed in like best intentions of others, even being an eight year old or nine year old. Um, even to this day, I always believe in the best intentions of others, but like, it's so hard to do that. And then also stand up for yourself and your family. My parents had won a contest in, I want to say 2008. And so my parents ended up being on Good Morning America at one point. And after that, we got recognized and we could be in any restaurant. We could be in a different state. It didn't matter. Someone would know who my mom was because they saw a commercial or they saw that segment or whatever. So it was like, okay, now you have all these other people giving you positive attention, but you've had so much negative attention before. Like, how do you differentiate between the two? It was hard because you'd have someone walking towards your family. And then my gut reaction was, oh my God, they're going to say something about the fact that my parents are white and I have black siblings. So it was like, it was a lot of fear. I grew up in a lot of fear, aside from all the good times. Like, there's definitely a lot of fear that happened. From the time I was adopted in 96 to the time I was 10 or 11, we had had over 75 kids in our house, in and out. I was exposed to a lot of things that, like, in my good Christian home, I wouldn't have been exposed to. Because we were getting kids from, like, South Side of Chicago. We were getting kids from, like rural areas and like it was great because I definitely have a lot more experiences and I definitely was exposed to a lot more that like helped me now growing up but it was as an eight-year-old kid you're like oh what's going on like you're hearing words that were never used you know like the first time I heard a curse word was from a kid we adopted or a kid we fostered do you feel like you became like an ambassador or like a like a manager of some of these (laughs) kids (laughs) Definitely. Um, I definitely felt like the mom, like the mom kid. My mom was very involved in DCFS. My dad worked for um, the big train company in Chicago. So it was like my dad was always in Chicago. When my mom was home, if she had to be down in Springfield for something, like 
and my sister, who at the time was 18, if she was doing something in school or something, I was at home. I was I was the one. I was making sure that the kids didn't burn down the house or that something didn't happen. And it was definitely a lot of pressure, but it also make, made me feel very important because I kind of was overlooked. I definitely took care of myself more than my other siblings did sometimes, where like I was very, like from day one, very high, strong and very able to take care of myself because I could just see I I could adapt I could see I could adapt I could feel what other people are feeling and I just kind of wanted to always not be the issue kind of a thing I I I like to call myself the tour guide I was definitely like the (laughs) tour guide of the family we lived in we lived in like a countryside area in the suburb of Chicago we had a lot of land to run around and play and so as soon as we you know as soon as I'd see the the caseworker's car show up and see the kid walk out it's kind of like the beginning of Annie of like oh my gosh like there's a new kid and you get so excited but I would just like all right let's go I'm going to show you everything this is where you don't go this is where mom and dad like hide the candy like let me show you all the great spots (laughs) that's just kind of what I felt was my job my sister was first year freshman in college and so I was it was me I was the oldest in the house so I was I was the one that told everyone the secrets and kept the family together kind of um my parents pre my brother's death my parents were very close and very you just always saw them in love and they were definitely really good parents when it came to keeping us together keeping the family together you weren't allowed to leave the dinner table until everyone was done eating we didn't eat till dad got home like those things that just made sure that we had time together Mm -hmm. um my mom would always like do special dates for us kids because there were so many of us like how did you get time one-on-one so she would like okay you get your school done in an hour or your schoolwork done like we're gonna go on a trip or or like a date um she used to do this thing where if we got a because we we're homeschooled so if we got a full grade done in the time that it took us if we got two grades done in the time that took us one we get to go on a trip and that was my first time on a plane and I was like 10 and we got to go to Florida like they did they definitely did things like that but then there were other times where it just kind of felt like you were alone and you felt like, where's my place in the family? It definitely felt like that when we got more kids because there were times that we had like five or six foster kids at once. And I was like, okay, if my head's going to explode. And trying to also like, we, we had some that were really hard to deal with and really hard to like figure out if they even wanted to be helped or they wanted to be cared for because they would act out or they would try to run away or like sometimes they would get violent like we definitely had the upsides and the downsides and it was it was hard to like want to protect your family but then also like feel like you had to protect yourself I was the only one who had their own room and I think it was yeah so and I think a lot of it is because I was so I'm 25 now um back then I was eight and then my youngest sister was like or my next sister was like nine seven Mm -hmm. and then I had a brother who was nine or something like that I don't remember ages um but like we all didn't get along um I got along with like my youngest siblings but I didn't really get along with the middle ones and so no one really wanted to share a room with me and it was great I loved it like I got the whole basement to myself I could I could watch as many episodes of One Tree Hill as I wanted like I didn't I didn't have to do anything it was great 
Um, but it definitely got lonely, you know, like being in the basement got lonely, being by myself got lonely. Yeah, Brooke Davis and Peyton only can provide yep. so much comfort. <laughs> P. Sawyer, I, I still to this day will name my first dog after, I don't know why, but like I will name my first dog Sawyer because that's like my favorite character. Oh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and like I found comfort in in watching other families on TV, but you never, like back then, you didn't see a family like mine. You yeah. didn't see a family with, unless it was cheaper by the dozen, which I would have loved to be sisters with Hillary Duff. Yeah. Um, you know, like there was really not anything that you could relate to. So I would just, I would just like, I'd write or I'd listen to music or I would watch shows that like I felt like, hey, I want to be a part of that family. We got Matthew. Um, it's like the Gaelic version of Matthew. And um, we got him in 2003. And I still remember the day that we got him because my mom had walked in the house with a baby carrier. And we didn't know we were getting another child, which just happened a lot, where my parents had their plans. And then they would tell us that they were like going grocery shopping or my mom was going to a conference in Chicago and they showed up with a kid. It just, it was normal. And he had this big yellow pacifier that had a big smiley face on it. And that's that was the day I was hooked. Like I remember looking at that kid and just being like, that's that's my baby brother. And we didn't know a lot about him. I didn't know a lot about him. I knew that I had overheard my parents say like, oh, it's a private adoption or we knew that uh, as it went on, I knew that like he had walking problems. Um, he had cerebral palsy. So we had to take him to physical therapy a lot. Like I just remember a lot of car rides and we had a big 15 passenger van. Um, it was, it was our own little church van. It was great. And <laughs> we would pile all in there and I would always sit right next to him and I just hold it. I put my hand there and just hold him, hold his hand the whole time. Um, he definitely could sense when other kids were scared. I mean, he was very young, but he you could just see on his face. Like, he'd either smile when everyone else was happy or, like, he'd have this sour look on his face when it, he, when it felt like there was a tense time. It was weird. We had, like, all of us clung to him. Like, he was, like, our little, like, mascot of the family. Um, everyone loved him. Everyone wanted more time with him. We would fight over who got to hold him. It was just, <laughs> that was just how it was. Like, Matthew was like the golden child in our family. We really like took the time to like be a family when we got him. It was kind of like the missing piece because there was just so much going on when we had adopted him, like just family fights and like my parents were fighting more. And it was kind of like how they say, like when things are, tensions are high, like you get something to like focus your attention on. It kind of felt like that. Do you think that your parents were fighting about the stress of having so many kids? Oh, yeah, because my my mom was definitely more of the one that kept saying yes. My dad was like, OK, slow down, yeah. <laughs> like too many kids. And like my brothers also would chime in, you know, like, OK, way too many kids. Like we have. Why are there 12? <laughs> like so it was definitely a lot of pressure. My mom was very like, no, this is what I'm going to keep doing. Like I want to I want to do everything I can to like give these kids a home. I would say that people supported her, like my family, but there were definitely some like times where they were like, okay, what are you doing? Like, why, why do we have three foster kids at once? But she's like, because they need a home. They need a roof over their head. But then when we got Matthew, like everything just went quiet. It was nice. It was like kind of that common ground yeah. for a little bit. 
To kind of set the stage, it was June. So we spent all of our days out by the pool. Like that was just like our thing. And people would come over and swim. Like we just have random neighbors show up. They're like, hey, can we swim in your pool? Like that was just a normal thing in my family um, and in our neighborhood. We were the family that always threw the like homeschool parties. And, you know, so people knew we had a pool. We had horses. Like we had a big backyard. You could just do anything at that house. And so we always had people over. And like leading up to the day that it happened, we were like literally outside all the time. And my mom was doing a lot of stuff with DCFS during this time. And so we had babysitters um, constantly. And so like the day before it happened, we had a babysitter and um, it was a very close family friend and had asked like, hey, your mom said it's okay. My mom said it's okay. Do you want to come back and sleep over at our, at our house? And I was like, yeah, sure. Being a nine-year-old. And like coming from a family where your mom doesn't really let you sleep over at other people's houses very often, you're going to say yes. Like, and you have, you know, so many siblings, like you want to get out whenever <laughs> you can. But I didn't know what saying yes was like going to really entail, you know, because um, it was like two days before the actual death had taken place. And um, I wasn't there for it. That was like one of the only times that like I actually like, I guess you could say, like, I went and did something for myself. Like, I mm-hmm. I left my family and went and had fun for two days, you know. And coming back, like, I didn't know what I was going to come back to. It was definitely, like, a surreal thing of, like, they the family that I, I went to hang out with, they lived about an hour from where my parents lived. And this is the, um, the mom of the family. Like, she's the one who helped my mom go through the process of adopting me. So, like, very close. Like, my mom had been friends with her for probably 15 years at this point. And I was very close with their kids. She adopted a lot of kids, too. And we were at a softball game. And, like, I remember, and this sounds crazy, but I just remember, like, hitting, like getting this feeling in the pit of my stomach like something was wrong. And, like, I couldn't figure it out. And I was nine. I didn't have a cell phone. My parents were very, like, no, no kid, no phone, so you drive kind of a thing till you have a job. And so, like, I couldn't reach out to my family or anything. But I just, like, I kind of fell off. We had gotten in the car to go back, and um, we were going to swim for one last time and then head back to my my parents' house. And I just remember getting in the car with her, and she called the house. Someone else had answered, and that's when I knew. I just, like, knew something was wrong. Because I just remember saying, well, where's, where's Pat and Judy? Like, what's going on? And then I had asked as soon as she got off the phone, she's like, oh, your parents just went on a date night. Someone's watching the kids, like, trying to, like, keep this nine-year-old calm. But, like, I was very smart back then and, like, very intuitive. And I knew when something was wrong and I could read people's feelings. And I just, I knew something was off. Like, the second she got off the phone, I was like, oh, boy, what's going on? What am I coming home to? I want to say it was, like, 3 o'clock when we had finally left. And it was just me... And her name's Debbie. It was just me and Debbie in the car. And she had kept trying to, like, keep me in high spirits. And I was just sitting there, like... I mean, back then, I didn't know what anxiety was. Now I do. But I didn't back then. And I I know now that, like, that's what I was feeling. I was feeling this overwhelming sense of anxiety. I was feeling this, like, pit in my stomach, like, chest tightening. Couldn't keep focus. Couldn't even, like... I didn't even want to stare out the window. Like, I just... I felt off I felt like something was wrong I remember the like breaking point was we were driving back she took a shortcut we hit a train and so like 
and in Illinois, or really anywhere, but trains, like, they last forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, if you hit a train, your whole day's ruined. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we, like, we were waiting for this train, and it wasn't a passenger train. It was, like, a stock car. And I'm like, all right, great. And that's when I just, like, lost it. And I was like, what is going on? And she wouldn't tell me. And I just sat back there and I just thought of other things. I remember we had talked about like finding Nemo and like movies and like that kind of stuff and like trying to just focus my attention on something else. But I just I couldn't because I knew something was wrong. We lived we were like three houses into the subdivision. And this is a woman who has been to my house many times and she purposely went in a different way. And that's when I was like, okay, there's something going on. Like, what is going on? And what was happening is she didn't want me to see the pile of cars between, like, the stop sign of our neighborhood and our house. There was just, like, tons of cars up and down the streets. And it was a mixture of, like, my brothers, my parents' small group, and a few cop cars. But as soon as she parked the car, I, like, grabbed myself, ran in the house, and I'm just, like, shaking. And my little sister, O'Shea, comes up to me, and she's six at this time. And her and my brother, Coven come up to me, and they're just like, Matthai drowned. And I just remember taking a breath and going, what do you mean Matthai drowned? And them just being like, mom and dad are at the hospital. And everyone's, like, starting to come up towards me, and I'm just like, no. I, like, I'm like, I'm noping out, not doing this. And I, like, ran down to my room in the basement, put my stuff down, I was not an emotional kid, so, like, I just sobbed for, like, a good five minutes. And then I took a deep breath. I, like, went upstairs, and I was just, I I tried to keep everyone else calm. And I just remember sitting by my um, brother and his wife and just, like, trying to read everyone's faces. Like, I was sitting in a neutral spot so I could try to figure out what was going on. I could try to figure out if someone knew if he had passed or not. I didn't I didn't know. No one has told us anything at this point. And it's probably, like, five or six by this time, and it's summer, so the sun is starting to set down. And um, I remember my both my sister-in-law's names are Jen, and so Jen and Jen had, like, hey, let's go to, <laughs> I know, it's weird, um, but we call them Jen 1 and Jen 2, so, like, they had said, let's go to Meyer. we're going to go get groceries, and I just remember, like, walking up and down the aisles with them, and they were trying every little thing to make me laugh, like, at one point, they were like, hey, did you know mashed potatoes come in powder form, and I'm like... I don't care. Like, I'm too focused on what's going on in the bigger picture. And I just couldn't really contain my emotions internally. But externally, I I probably seemed like I was fine because I had to keep it together. I had my little siblings watching me. Um, We had just, at this point, we had just fostered two little girls who now have been adopted in our family. Um, But we had just fostered them. So, like, I have two new babies in our house that, like, they don't know what the hell's going on. Like, no one knows what's going on. We had gotten home, and like an hour later, my mom walked in, and it was my mom. My dad wasn't too far behind her, and then like a pastor from our church had walked in, and that's when I knew. I, I didn't even have to hear the words. I just knew as soon as I saw my mom walk in, and her hands were up to her face. And like, I knew that that meant like he was gone. There was, there was nothing that they could have done. And I didn't even have to hear the words. I just started like crying, trying to keep my siblings together, trying to keep myself together. 
my dad was a mess. My mom was a mess. Like, it was just so many emotions. And my sister, my older sister, was actually at an internship in Wyoming. And no one could could get the get their emotions together to call her. And so my dad had dialed the phone and I was the one who told her. And like being a nine-year-old kid telling your sister that your brother just passed away, like that was like, that was where I was like, okay, this is, this is my role in this is to be the one that holds everyone together. I, I pieced it together a decent amount, you know, just asking like my little siblings of like, okay, what was going on? And, you know, it came to the conclusion of dad was making dinner, mom was sleeping on the couch, no one was watching with IU. And when I came to that realization, I was like, oh, well, shit, like, who do I blame then? Like, because you want to have, a, you want to have a villain in, in the story, right? Like, you want to have that villain, but you can't because it was an accident. And it was hard for me to wrap my head around that. Like, I don't have a concrete person to blame, you know? And years later now, like, I still, I have a hard time blaming my dad um, because he was, he was the one who was watching the kids and my mom was sleeping. Like, I have a really hard time of like not blaming him and not feeling like he could have changed it, you know? Because at the end of the day, it was, a freak accident. Drowning happens. We have a big river in around my area, the Fox River, and like people would, that would happen there. But like I had never had a firsthand experience with death of a sibling or, or death of someone who was so close in my life. And it was like a, it was definitely like a culture shock. It definitely like paralyzed me for a little bit, but like I had to keep going. I didn't have a choice. Immediately after, there was like 30 people in my house. And like that wasn't not common for my family to have people over, but it also wasn't common for it to be because someone died. It was a lot of like people pulling me aside and like, hey, let's go on a walk, let's talk. Because everyone knew I was, I was the kid who smiled. I was the kid who kept everyone happy. I was, if I wasn't smiling, it was like hell froze over kind of a thing. Like I was the the happy-go-lucky kid, always wanted to talk to everyone, always wanted to be friends with everyone. Like that's just how I was. I definitely was the one that they were kind of scared about the most of like how hard this was going to hit me. And I could tell just by how everyone was kind of handling me specifically of like, um, a lot of the people in like my parents' small group were like pulling me aside and like, let's talk. And like, hey, you're the strong one, but like, don't feel like you have to be right now. Like, it's okay to grieve. And I didn't know how to. I remember my mom not leaving bed for days and I had never seen that. I remember so many people at my house, but like so many people like, hey, we're gonna take the kids. I had never been to Chuck E. Cheese in my life so many times in one week. Like, <laughs> I wish I was kidding. Or to, like, a mall. Like, I had never been out and about with so many family friends because they were all trying to keep us occupied. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, like, there were so many meals coming in the house. There were, like, random people coming in the house. Like, there's just so much going on that I had to wrap my head around. And I couldn't. Leading up to the funeral, like, we were waiting for my sister to come home from... Wyoming and when she finally came home it was like a week after he passed away and when she came home that's when like the memorial that we did a memorial when that was like starting to come together and I had a hard time fathoming it because 
I I couldn't remember my grandparents or my grandfather's funerals at all. And so, like, I didn't know what to expect. And I knew we were going to be at, like, our church, and it was going to be people that I knew. But it was going to be all people that, like, want to ask more questions. And, like, I was not prepared for that. I remember when we had gotten to the memorial, and it was in one of the same rooms where we all had, like, small group and youth group and everything. And um, I just remember walking in there, and, like, I, I just couldn't. It was a place I was so familiar with, but I couldn't recognize it. And it was, like, one of those things where I was, like, what is what is this room? And it was because I was so paralyzed by the grief and by the sadness, but I didn't know where to put those emotions. And so I just cried. At one point, my grandmother, who now has passed away, but um, she was there at the memorial, and I remember her coming up to me and being like, this is your mom's time to grieve. And I was just taken so aback by that. Like, that changed a lot of family dynamic in my family. Like, something as simple as that. Like, stop crying, suck it up, it's your mom's turn. After that happened, I was like, you know what? I'm, that's what, like, that's where that wall went up where I was like, I can't grieve anymore. If, if that's how I'm going to be treated, like, I can't. I can't show any, like, it was kind of like feeling like I was weak. Like, I can't be weak anymore. I have to be this, like, strong kid that doesn't talk about their emotions, that doesn't, I had to, like, think like an adult and like a kid who had to hold themselves together. And I didn't know how to do that, but I just had to. So I consistently crash around 2 p.m. every single weekday without fail. I take a long, luxurious nap with my eye mask and some days wake up feeling rejuvenated, but other times wake up in an anxious panic to a bunch of slacks and urgent emails that I missed. On those days where I need to make it through the afternoon, I find it really hard to keep my energy and stress levels steady. Thankfully, Magic Mind sent me over some shots and those have helped so much. I take it alongside my breakfast and it helps me feel like I'm helping future me on those days when I need a snooze but can't take one. And most of all, they're with natural ingredients like matcha, lion's mane mushrooms, and ashwagandha. All ingredients that help anxiety and stress. And you know that your girly needs all the help she can get with stress management. So if you're like me, I totally recommend you go check them out at magicmind.co slash babysitter. You can also use my discount code babysitter20, all uppercase, to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days, so hurry. Bridge to Terabithia is a 2000 film based on the 1977 novel of the same name. The original novel was based on events from the childhood of the author's son, screenwriter David Patterson. The story follows two preteen neighbors who endure bullying and familial financial struggles and want to escape the reality, so they created a magical place called Terabithia inside of a treehouse. Warriors. Um, try dragonflies. No, they're warriors. From the treetop provinces. I, I don't know this game. What game? This is for real. 
This is the ruins. My dad tend to get a lot of like free movie tickets and like free sporting event tickets and things. And um, one of the things he had gotten was tickets to go see Bridge to Terabithia. And none of us knew what the movie was about. But at that point, it had been three years after he passed away, and we were kind of like coming together as a family again. Like we were finally going on family vacations, and like, and so this was just a night we were going to go to the movie, and it was like a big thing because we were going to an AMC and we, we grew up around Marcus theaters. And so it was like that big thing of like, okay, we're going to go to a big theater and watch a movie. And it was the Barrington one, um, which, you know, that's like, that's that was the, the nicest one. Yeah, it, exactly. It was like the big area. Like if you went there, you just felt so fancy. And, you know, we went to like a fancy restaurant beforehand um, but I remember being in the theater, watching the movie. I had loved Anna Sophia Robb at that point. I'm pretty sure eight-year-old me or 10-year-old me had a crush yeah. on her, but I couldn't <laughs> figure that out yet. You know, like first, like seeing, <laughs> seeing Zoe Deschanel, like all of these people on the screen that I loved, I could sense something was going to happen because I kept seeing all of like the water imagery and um, they had the rope that they swing from one side to the other. And I was like, okay, something's going to happen. So like, I could sense it. But then when the scene actually happened, um, you know, they don't show her falling into the water, but they do show um, him going to the creek and seeing the high waters and the rope was broken. And like, that's when I knew. If you haven't seen the film, which I hadn't before this interview, you can still likely sense what's about to happen. Jess, played by a young Josh Hutcherson, is on top of the world after going on a one-on-one art museum field trip with the hot teacher he has a crush on, played by Zoe Deschanel. But when he gets home, there's bad news. The worst news awaiting him. His best friend, his protector, his playmate, Leslie, died after hitting her head in the creek because the rope snapped. Hey, guys. Where in God's name have you been? Where have you been? Mom, I asked you. It wasn't like a... They thought you were dead. Brenda, hush. Dead? What's going on? Your friend Leslie is dead. She drowned in a creek this morning. Apparently, she tried to swing across on a rope and it broke. They think she hit her head. No, no, it, it, it's it's not that kind of rope. It it, it it couldn't break. It wouldn't have. But it did. I'm sorry, son. No, you're lying. She's not even dead, lying. And I remember turning to my mom and saying, I'm going to go outside. And I don't think she realized what was going on. Um, and so I like, or I said I had to go to the bathroom, but I really went and sat outside until the movie was over. It was the first time I had, I had been um, faced with that situation again. And, you know, three years later, so I was, I was actually 12. And so I was like going into like young adulthood and like my teenage years. And I was very angsty back then. Um, <laughs> I kind of rebelled a little bit. So I just, I sat outside on the curb until the movie was over. And then like, finally my parents came outside and I'm like, what's going on? And like, I wouldn't tell them. 
because I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to word it. And like, it took probably a good two weeks to finally tell my mom what was going on. And when I did, she's like, I, f- I felt it too towards the end. And like, we were able to like talk about it a little bit, but it was, it was one of those things that like, I felt the emotions. I felt like the tightness in my chest, just like when I was driving back to, to find out that my brother had drowned. When it first happened, he denied. Like, he was like, no, this isn't true. That's what I did. I I remember, like, when my siblings had told me, I was like, no, 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 this isn't what happened. Um, that was definitely something that stood out to me was, like, the way we both... I could relate to him because of the way we both grieved, of, like, denial. No, she's she's still here. And, like, I had done that. I had done that um, to, to a small group leader in my church. I was like, no, my brother's still alive but he's not like there were just very small perils of like what he went through and then I could see myself in that but because I didn't finish the movie the first time I didn't know any of that so like when I finally watched the movie fully through I was like well I could have like felt a little bit better about myself (laughs) because I would have seen someone else going through it but it took me a, a good like two or three years to finally watch that movie again and when I did it was on the anniversary of his death and now it's kind of been like this tradition and it brings me more peace than it does anxiety now. And I still get, I get choked up at that scene. I still have a hard time watching it all the way through, but like now I have other things I can do. Like I fidget or I, I write down my emotions or, you know, like thanks therapy for all these coping skills <laughs> of like what to do now. But every year on the anniversary, I do something for myself. And I do something that is in honor of him because I like I'm starting to regain that like, okay, I'm allowed to do things for myself. Like it took me a while to like regain that took me a while to not feel guilty about it of like doing something that makes me happy. But like I know at the end of the day, like that's what my brother would want. It's stories like this that make me love these pop culture segments so much. Forgiving ourselves for what is not our fault, like our family member's death or the last time we spoke with them and replaying some moment in our head where we weren't perfect, it's so difficult to extend compassion to ourselves. But watching someone else go through what we did, even if it's just on screen, can heal us in ways that we didn't know possible. You just need someone like Josh Hutcherson's dad to tell you that it was absolutely never your fault. I didn't invite her to go to the museum with me. But I didn't want to invite her. I wasn't there to go with her. It's my fault. No, 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 no. It's not your fault. None of that makes it so. It's a terrible thing. It doesn't make any sense, but it's not your fault, Jess. She brought you something special when she came here, didn't she? That's what you hold on to. That's how you keep her alive. I think that, especially, so especially after the death of my brother, I think that I had to be the parent of myself. You know, when that happened, there was so many of us, there was eight still living at home under the age of... 12. I mean, I was the oldest at home and I was only nine. It was definitely a, 
okay, Regan has to be the parent now, kind of a thing. So, like, the dynamic of my family was in the summer, that was, like, our time to, like, do outdoor stuff, do gardening, that kind of stuff. And it and it was gone completely. That summer, we didn't do, like, my parents pulled us all from, like, church camp. They pulled us from sports. It was basically, this is our summer to grieve. But we didn't know how to as a family. The first thing I saw was my parents' marriage, like, deteriorating completely. And they're still together now, but, like, their dynamic has still completely changed. Five years ago, I want to say six years ago, they moved to Michigan, and they have, like, two lake houses next to each other. My dad's in one, my mom's in the other. And that's just how it's been for, like, the last five years of my life. They're still together, they still talk, but it's like... Hey, dinner's ready over a text message and my dad comes over and eats dinner and then that's it. Like the dynamic has changed immensely. I think it's a lot of kind of like what I had to do deal with was like the blame game, the guilt, the where do we go from here now? Like kind of a thing because like my dynamic with my dad specifically has changed greatly of like we just we don't really talk. Um we don't have a great relationship. My dynamic with my family, aside from my brother passing away, has changed just because me being gay and mm-hmm. coming from a very Religious. Christian, conservative family, especially like this last political season, like there's a lot of hard talks that had to be had and a lot of shifts in like how we went about family functions, um, especially during a pandemic. The beginning was my brother dying and then like it just continued to go down from there. Like, I remember specifically talking to my older brother about, like, how he handled it, too. And he's much, much older. And, like, he kind of was very detached from the family. Like, he was the the atheist of the family. Um, and, like, he was the first one to, like, rebel and be away from, like, my parents' beliefs and whatnot. And he had a really hard time with my parents afterwards when they wanted to start to, like, continue adopting. After Matthew passed away, he passed away June 25th, 2005. And August, I want to say like mid-August, we got my brother Keanu. My mom got the call. She, I remember I was nine. I still remember this conversation. And she asked me if it was a good idea. And I'm like, why are you, I'm a nine-year-old. Like, why are you asking me? But I was, as I said, like, I was the strong one. I had to be the one that like had all their emotions together. So like, it made sense that she was like asking me how she felt like, this would change our family. Um, and when we got Keanu, we all looked at him like the first week and we just saw Matthew. Matthew is Hispanic. Keanu is is black. And like for some reason, we just kept seeing Matthew's face in Keanu. And Keanu's story is very complicated. Like it took him a year to actually talk to us. And when we finally got him to say a word, it felt like he was the missing piece of the family. Kind of how we felt when we got Matthew. Mm-hmm. It definitely was hard to wrap my head around my parents getting another kid, but then it made sense. Like, it started to make sense. Mm-hmm. They're only three months apart in age, and so, like, even to this day, like, we still talk about Matthew. You know, it's hard. Um, it's been, what, 16 years? Well, it's, it's definitely still hard, but that's the one way we can, like, keep his memory alive. And, like, Keanu definitely, he never met him, but he's still, like, he does little things. Like, he has, like, an M on his room wall, and, like, he remembers his birthday and, like, that kind of stuff. Like, he's very close to him, but he never knew him. Uh-huh. And it's definitely, it's cathartic a little bit, you mm-hmm. know? Like, um, it's kind of where the closure came in of just being able to, like, 
say, okay, this happened. I can't change it. And all I have to do now is move on from it. Like, but also keep his memory alive. I came out twice. (laughs) Um, But from like nine to, I want to say 13 or 14, like I was very oblivious to like what was going on in my family in a sense. Like I knew what was going on, but I didn't. Like I was oblivious to the fact that like, my parents weren't sleeping in the same bed anymore. I was oblivious to the fact that, like, my mom would fall asleep on the couch accidentally and my dad would already be sleeping. Like, I was oblivious to that kind of stuff. There were a lot more fights happening. There's a lot more blaming of me happening. Like, I could not even be in the room and, like, that would happen. And so there's just, like, a lot of... Um, I adopted the I'm sorry way too much and I like that just became my like phrase of like I'm sorry it didn't even matter if it was my fault or not it was it was a thing that I said and like that was a phrase that just carried me through um as many years as I could get it to and I would just I would always constantly apologize I would always constantly take the blame it was my guilt telling me I need to take the blame from like when my brother passed away it was that guilt catching up with me of like okay now you, you couldn't take the blame for that so take the blame for everything else up until probably I was 19 or 20, um, most of my siblings did not like me. And it was mainly because I was I was kind of the, the catch-all for the blame and for the anger and anything else that happened. So what started as like a defense mechanism then became like an adopted behavior and like the general view of you. Yes, exactly. Being in in a family so large, you get lost in it a little bit. After my brother passed away, I was definitely the one that was looked as kind of the one that was straying away from the family in a sense of because I was taking his death too hard was what was said to me so many times. But really, I was just growing up. When I turned 15, that's when I had I had come out the first time and tried to come out. And it was like, oh, no, 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 we're going to sweep this under the rug. This didn't actually happen. You're not gay. I remember specifically my mom taking me to a Red Robin um, a week later and asking me if I was still in my gay phase. And I was like, you know what, Mom? No, it's gone. I'm cured. Like, I'm good. Have more <laughs> you- fries. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm like, let's get more fries. Let's get more uh, strawberry lemonade. Come on, let's, let's, you know, I was trying to, like, be what she wanted me to be, and I couldn't. I struggled with with self-harm and with depression and anxiety, and um, I still struggle with depression and anxiety now. Back then, being a 15-year-old, you couldn't, I couldn't talk to my mom about it, and it just felt like I didn't have anyone to go to. I didn't have anywhere to turn. When I was 16 was when my parents bought the lake houses in Michigan, and um, they started slowly spending more time up there. And I was 16 in community college because I, I graduated early being homeschooled and I was a 16 year old and the summers my parents weren't home so I was a 16 year old with a home by herself like empty house wow. which you could imagine what that meant like parties at my place all the time pretty much I definitely got into things I shouldn't have gotten into because I didn't have any guidance I didn't have like my parents didn't even teach me about credit cards like I was 18 when I got my first credit card and like blew that one out of the water like I didn't really have a stable family life and my grandmother passed away when I was 17 and the one that you know I had had the altercation whatever you want to call it like the situation with at my brother's memorial um when she passed away like my mom really fell apart 
And so in a sense, my mom took the kids and ran to Michigan. And then my dad retired and followed. From 17 to 20, I was living in their house by myself. Uh, This big old house with like 10 rooms. I was a full-time shift lead at Poppily and I was in college and that's why my parents let me stay there rent free and um, they lived in Michigan and I cleaned up the house when we had showings and that was it and I like I was completely detached from my family it was a very lonely thing it was you know like okay so when am I gonna see my parents again like I literally would go months without seeing them and like to be honest I really didn't have any desire to go up to Michigan and see them it was a three-hour drive and I hated driving it whenever I had to do it I would bring my friends along and be like hey we have a lake house let's go to like not have to deal with my family when I finally came out I was I want to say 18 or 19 and my mom had just come home like didn't even tell me she was coming home just came home I was I probably watching one trail or something um (laughs) and we had she was like I'm gonna take you to dinner I had a I had a night class so we went to dinner before my night class to a to a red lobster this time I have a theme um and so we had sat we were eating dinner and we were just talking and I I I don't remember if I just decided out of like thin air I was gonna tell my mom I was gay but I was like mom it's not a phase this was never a phase this was just something that I had to deal with and that you like I had to figure out a time for you to come to terms with and it took about four years for her to finally like actually talk about not even talk about me being gay but being okay to talk about like anyone I've dated in the past or talk about people I'm dating or whatever like it took a really long time for her to even say the word girlfriend. Like, I remember at one point I told her I was dating someone. She was like, I feel like I'm going to be sick. You telling me that. I'm like, all right, great. So, like, then it was like, okay, now I know where the limits are. I'm not going to say anything. And 21, when she finally met my first girlfriend, and it went great. And then, like, now it's, it's like I don't even have one. Like, it's one of those things that, like, she decides when she wants to accept it when she doesn't. So interesting because like the probability of having 12 kids, like <laughs> of course one of you Of course one of them's gonna be gay. Yeah. Yeah. Are you the only sibling that you like that's out? Yes. Yeah. I am the only one. Um there's another comment, I'm sure. Oh yeah. We have suspicions. Like my parents didn't know this, but my first um encounter with being gay or anything was with a with a foster kid like I was taught that by them not by my own you know like they had said like oh I have a girlfriend I was like what's that you're a girl like how does that work like that was that was where I was very sheltered growing up I wasn't even allowed to listen to Katy Perry like (laughs) I literally was very sheltered until like my siblings grew up and especially after my brother passed away like that's when my parents kind of like stopped caring as much I think they didn't have the energy to care anymore mm-hmm. you know they didn't have the energy to continue to be strict with us and I learned my first things from like things from people they brought in our own house you know and I think that was hard for them to like swallow like when I first came out and when I first um was distancing myself from my family I saw myself still wanting to keep the peace like I still wanted to keep that relationship I still you know, I would I would purposely leave things out um, that was happening in my life so my mom didn't have anything to, you know, 
be upset about. But as the process of grieving and and closure for me, um, not necessarily like forgetting that my brother had died, but like being okay with it. As that started to come about, I started to feel like more like myself. Like I started to feel like I could embrace my sexuality, my beliefs. I mean, I (laughs) voted against the party my parents wanted me to vote for. And like that was a huge thing. Like little things like that, I stopped caring about. I stopped caring about if I was this perfect mold of what my parents wanted me to be. And I started being myself. And I think the more I I grieved, the more I came to terms with things that were weighing me down, the more free I felt. And it, it took years of therapy. It took years of exposing myself to new cultures, to new people, to researching new things, um, not feeling like I had to fit in this box or this mold for the rest of my life. When I was about to turn 20, I want to say, is when my mom was like, hey, we sold the house. You have to get your own apartment. I was like, oh, great. And at that point, I dropped out of school because mental health. And I had made the decision to follow my career path more than to follow my education path. And when they sold the house, it's kind of funny, um, when they sold the house and they thought it was finally sold and I'd finally, I just signed my lease for my apartment, they had gotten a call that um, the person that bought the house brought a priest through and the priest had said that the house was haunted. And it was like full circle of like, <laughs> well, what the hell is happening? Like, I didn't know what to think of it. And, I, and like, in the back of my head, I remember saying, well, I mean, my brother did die at our house. You know, it was, it was one of those things I was like, is it haunted? Honestly, I've always said it was. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you. I went back to, like, all these conversations I would have with my friends. Like, I feel like my house is haunted. And it, like, came for a full circle. And when that happened, it was just... It was a funny thing. It was like, well, how do you go on from there? You know, I I have a really hard time with grieving. It took a lot of time because I had this resistance to doing anything for myself anymore. Because I did it for the one time I was like actually a kid for once in my life. And then I lost my brother. And I carried on that guilt of like, okay, if I was there, I could have been watching him. Or if I was there, I would have you know, been having him in my room or been with all the kids or something like it was at the time of his death. I didn't have all the facts. I didn't know what the, where everyone was in the house. I didn't know who was home. I didn't know who wasn't home. You know, we had, um, we had a gator on our pool. We had a pool alarm. Like that was my first thought. I was like, who left the gate open? Who forgot to turn the alarm on? You know, like those are all things that a nine-year-old shouldn't think about but I did because I didn't know where else to go I didn't know where else to like I couldn't ask my mom you know like I was sitting there with her in her bed when she was just a complete wreck I couldn't ask my dad because he was a complete wreck my siblings were too young to really understand what was going on so I just had to like piece things together and like not let my imagination run wild because that would have let me that led me down so many different rabbit holes that I didn't want to go through there's just been so much different self-discovery since um, the process of grieving and and the process of coming to terms with everything that has happened. You know, he wasn't he wasn't the last person to die in my family, but when the the next deaths happened, like my grandmother and my uncle, um, who were also as close I was as close to as I was my brother, like I was able to 
grieve a little bit differently. I, I didn't fully put up that wall. I actually did grieve. Therapy is what started it, but you know, truthfully and honestly, it was all of the things I grew up around, like pop culture, TV shows, music, like music was like my therapy. I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, so I will just say, you know, like, that was, like, my, my, instead of thinking about breakups when I listen to their songs, I would think about shit in my life. You know, like, there were, their poetry, like, all that kind of stuff is what really helped me. And, like, not being afraid to re-greet. I'm not afraid to talk about it now. I'm not afraid to, like, open up about it um, because it helps me in the end. It gives me new insight every time I talk about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Regan, you can follow her on Instagram at rjrm0219. That's rjrm0219. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Britt27ash. That's B-R-I-T-T-27-A-S-H on Instagram and Twitter. Or you can go to my website at BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>